It's been a while. I've had a long week. Trust me, I've been dealing with divorce stuff this week. That's why I haven't been online. Uh, but now we're going to go into Chapter 7 of Animal Farm by George Orwell. And this is the most, this is the turning point of the book. And with this, we're going to take, it's going to, it's a long chapter. It's a long chapter. It's a violent chapter. Um, but I think this is going to be the big thing. And the, the book goes completely downhill from there. This is Gene and you're listening to Dumbasses Talking Politics. Hey, hey, this is Gene. And I, I want to say, I'm sorry. I haven't been online. Uh, it's basically because I've had to deal with, uh, some paperwork for my ex-wife. I've been dealing with lawyers all week. I've been stressed out beyond all belief. Um, good news is that it looks like everything is going to work out just fine, but that doesn't really change anything. It's still really, st- I, I, I never get a divorce. Divorces suck. I swear to God, uh, because they just don't seem to ever end. So let's, let's go into chapter seven of Animal Farm. And like I had mentioned, this is a turning point chapter. It is a long chapter. It's about 11 pages. The next chapter is a little longer, 12 pages. I may break up the chapters depending on how long this chapter goes. Um, But this is a really striking chapter. I think this chapter here is the biggest chapter since chapter one. And it is one of the biggest chapters there is another chapter that is going to be really like, oh my God, I can't believe he did that. And then the last chapter is very striking. Um, but there are a lot of things to learn here. And one of the things I want you to do when you listen to this stuff is actually think about what's happening today. Because I stop and I, I talk about the past more than I talk about today, which I think is not a good thing. I should talk more about, hey, do you see how this relates today? I'll do a little bit of that today. But for the most part, it's always going to be about the past and how this crap has never worked before. I'm also going to change something. I'm not going to talk about communism. George Orwell believed in communism. This book was all about communism, but this is about authoritarianism. It really is. Any authoritarian government. Um, Hitler was an authoritarian. He was a socialist uh, I know everyone calls him a fascist, but the reality was he wasn't a fascist until Mussolini became uh, Mussolini convinced him it was better for the economy. I still do not believe fascism is a political uh, brand. It's actually an economic brand. Uh, for example, a lot of the things that FDR did was fascist, uh, and but it wasn't necessarily communist. So um, let's go through this. Let's start. Okay. I have to be careful here because sometimes I talk too much and then I never get into it enough. So here we go. Chapter seven. It was a bitter winter. The stormy weather was followed by sleet and snow and then by a hard frost, which did not break till well into February. The animals carried on as best they could with rebuilding the windmill, well knowing that the outside world was watching them and that the envious human beings would rejoice and triumph if the mill were not finished on time. Out of spite, the human beings pretended not to believe that it was Snowball who had destroyed the windmill. They said they said that it had fallen down because the walls were too thin. The animals knew that this 
is this was not the case. Still, it had been decided to build the walls three feet thick instead of the instead of eighteen inches as before, which meant collecting much larger quantities of stone. For a long time, the quarry was full of snowdrifts, and nothing could be done. Some progress was made in the dry, frosty weather that followed, but it was cruel work, and the animals could not feel so hopeful about it as they felt before. This is slavery in full motion now. This, that's what this is. Notice the work is cruel. It's not just the work. It's Napoleon, the leader of the group. I'll continue. They were always cold and usually hungry as well. Only Boxer and Clover never lost heart. Uh, Squealer made excellent speeches on the joy of service and the dignity of labor, but the other animals found more inspiration in Boxer's strength and his never-failing cry, I will work harder. In January, food fell short, the corn ration was drastically reduced, and it was announced that extra potato ration would be issued to make up for it. Then it was discovered that the greater part of the potato crop had been frosted in the clamps, which had not been covered thickly enough. The potatoes had become soft and discolored, and only few were edible. For days at a time, the animals had nothing to eat but chafe and ma mangrels. I don't know what that is. Mangles. Uh, starvation seemed to stare them in the face. The animals are already feeling the effects of famine. Very common in authoritarian governments. China had a famine. Soviet Union had a famine. Venezuela is currently in a famine. North Korea is currently in a famine. People can't eat. They, they starve. And that's just because when you shut out the outside world so that the outside world, so that the, uh, so that your people do not see the great things that are happening in the outside world, this is exactly what happens. It was, it was vitally necessary to conceal this fact from the outside world. Emboldened by the collapse of the windmill, the human beings were inter inventing fresh lies about Animal Farm. Once again, it was being put about that all the animals were dying of famine and disease, that, uh, and that they were continually fighting among themselves, and had restored to cannibalism, had resorted to cannibalism and infanticide. Napoleon was well aware of the bad results that might follow if the real facts of the food situation were known, and he decided to make use of Mr. Wimper to spread a contrary impression. Here, though, the animals had had little to or no contact with Wimper on his weekly visits. Now, however, a few selected animals, mostly sheep, were instructed to remark casually in the hearing that rations had been increased. In addition, Napoleon ordered the almost empty bins in the store shed to be filled nearly to the brim with sand, which was then covered up with what remained of the grain and the meal. On some suitable pretext, Wimper was led through the store shed and allowed to catch a glimpse of the bins. He was deceived and continued to report to the outside world that there was no food shortage on Animal Farm. Propaganda. Pure propaganda. And this is propaganda we see all the time in the media. Soviet Union, the media was very heavy into propaganda. When we dealt with Cuba, the media was very heavy into propaganda. And this is what it is. 
Today, North Korea does the same thing with their grocery stores. Americans will walk out and say, oh, the grocery stores look like they're full of produce, they're full of everything. And guess what? They're not. They're absolutely empty. So they're not they're empty, but they've got pictures of food. They don't even have enough food to put in the grocery stores to make up the propaganda. They have to use pictures. This is a very co- uh, common technique because the communists, and this is who this is who uh, this is who Orwell is actually talking about. The communists are extremely scared of what the people are going to think. They want to show how great their societies are. They're utopias. And that's a word you're going to hear two more times in this this little uh, talk. So it's very important that they look really good, even though they're a mess. Let's go on. Nevertheless, towards the end of January, it became obvious that it would be necessary to procure some more grain from somewhere. In these days, Napoleon rarely appeared in public, but spent all the time in the farmhouse, which was guarded at each door with the fierce-looking dogs. When he did emerge, it was in the commercial manner, with an escort of six dogs who closely surrounded him and growled if anyone came too near. Frequently, he did not even appear on Sunday mornings, but issued his orders through one of the other pigs, usually Squealer. On Sunday morning, Squealer announced that the hens who the hens that hens, who had come in to lay again, must surrender their eggs. Napoleon had accepted, through Whimper, a contract for 400 eggs a week. The price of these would pay for enough grain and meal to keep the farm going till summer, on and conditions were easier. When the hens heard this, they raised a terrible cry. They had been warned earlier that the sacrifice might be necessary, but had not believe that it would really happen. You notice it's always someone else that's sacrificing. It's never Napoleon or the pigs. Just saying. They were just getting their clutches ready for the spring sitting, and they presented, protested that to take the eggs away now was murder. For the first time since the expulsion of Jones, there was something resembling a rebellion. Led by the three black Minicora pullets, the pens made a determined effort to thwart Napoleon's wishes. Their method was to fly up to the rafters, and there lay their eggs, which smashed to pieces on the floor. Napoleon acted swiftly and ruthlessly. He ordered the hen's rations to be stopped, and decreed that any animal giving so much as a grain of corn to the hens should be punished by death. The dogs saw to it that these orders were carried out. For five days the hens held out. Then they capitulated and went back to their nesting boxes. Nine hens died in the meantime. Their bodies were buried in the orchard, and it was given out that they had died of coccidiasis. I don't know what that is. Whimper heard nothing of this affair, and the eggs were duly delivered, a grocer's van driving up to the farm once a week to take them away. Rebellion against the tyrant... But the tyrant has already established his power, and he's going to hold. He's going to win. He can't lose at this point. The threats of death, violence. Another thing I notice is that they said that the 
the breaking of the eggs was tantamount to murder. Now, let's understand, when Orwell wrote this book, abortion was a thing, okay? It was a thing back then. It wasn't legal everywhere. But um, the Chinese were already trying to figure out how to get rid of kids because there were too many and things like that. So I don't think abortion applies here, but it is something to think about. I, I really don't know. Um, at the time, uh, Planned Parenthood was already created, and abortion was already used in certain areas. So I'm not really sure if that's corresponding. Maybe I'll read some criticisms of this. I also want to point out the just lackadaisical thought to death. Nine hens died. Okay, we buried them out back. That's, that's a thing. All this while, no more had been seen of Snowball. He was rumored to be hiding in one of the neighboring farms, either Foxwood or Pinchfield. Napoleon was by this time on slightly better terms with the other farmers than before. It happened that there was a yard, a pile of timber which had been stacked there ten years earlier when the beech spiny was cleared. It was well seasoned and Wimper had advised Napoleon to sell it. Both Mr. Pinkerton and Mr. Frederick were anxious to buy it. Napoleon was hesitating between the two, unable, unable to make up his mind. It was noticed that whenever he seemed to point of coming to an agreement with Frederick, Snowball was declared to be hiding in Foxwood, while when he inclined towards Pinkleton, Snowball was said to be in Pinchfield. Suddenly, early in the spring, an alarming thing was discovered. Snowball was secretly frequenting the farm by night. The animals were so disturbed that they could hardly sleep in their stalls. Every night, it was said, he came creeping under the cover of darkness and performed all kinds of mischief. He stole the corn, he upset the milk pails, he broke the eggs, he trampled the seed beds, he gnawed the bark off the fruit trees. Whenever anything went wrong, it became it became usual to attribute it to Snowball. If a window was broken or a drain was blocked up, someone was certain to say that Snowball had come in the night and done done it. And when the key of the shod shed was lost, the whole farm was convinced that Snowball had thrown it down the well. Curiously enough, they went on believing this even after the mislaid key was found under a stack of meal. The cows declared unanimous, unanimously, uh, unanimously that Snowball crept into the stalls and milked them in their sleep. The rats, which had been troublesome that winter, were also said to be in league with Snowball. couple things here. All right. First off, Snowball has become the enemy of the state. Anything bad that happens is going to be blamed on him. It cannot be for mismanagement. It cannot be because these folks are, are the leadership is bad. It's got to be blamed on something, and it's going to be blamed on Snowball. The other thing is, enemies of the states are actually being created. Okay, and this is going to be important later on in the chapter. So the quote, the rats, which had been troublesome that winter, were also said to be in league with Snowball. So now, anybody who is not exactly on the same line as Napoleon, the totalitarian, the authoritarian, are said to be in league, are actually in bad straits with, um, are working with the enemy of the state. This is a big deal and going to be a constant theme throughout, through the end of this book.
Napoleon decreed there should be a full investigation to Snowball's activities. With his dogs in attendance, he set out and let and made a careful tour of inspection of the farms, farm buildings. The other animals followed at a respectful distance. At the, every few steps, Napoleon stopped and snuffed the ground for traces of Snowball's footsteps, which, he said, he could detect by the smell. He snuffed in every corner, in the barn, in the cowshed, in the henhouses, in the vegetable garden, and found traces of Snowball almost everywhere. He would put his snout to the ground and give several deep sniffs and exclaim in a terrible voice, Snowball, he has been here. I can smell him distinctly. And at the word of Snowball, all the dogs let out a blood-curdling growl and showed their teeth. Yeah, you don't think that's crap? Okay, let's move on. The animals were thoroughly frightened. It seemed to them as though Snowball were there, were some kind of invisible influence pervading the air about them and menacing them with all kinds of dangers. In the evening, Squealer called them together, and with an alarmed expression on his face, told them that he had some serious news. Here we go. We're getting into the deep. We're getting into the digs, so here we go. Comrades, cried Squealer, making a nervous, little nervous skips. A most terrible thing has been discovered. Snowball has sold himself to Frederick of Pinchfield Farm, who is even now plotting to attack us and take our farm away from us. Snowball is to act as a guide when the attack begins. But there is worse than that. There is worse than that. We had thought that Snowball's rebellion was caused simply by vanity and ambition. But we were wrong, comrades. Do you know what the real reason was? Snowball was in league with Jones from the very start. He was Jones's secret agent all the time. It had been proved by documents which he left behind him and which we have only just discovered. To my mind, this explains a great deal, comrades. Did we not foresee? Did we not see for ourselves how he attempted, fortunately without success, to get us defeated and destroyed in the Battle of Cowshed? The animals were stupefied. This was wickedness far, far outdoing Snowball's destruction of the windmill. But it was some minutes before they could fully take it in. They all remembered, or thought they remembered, how they had seen Snowball charging ahead of them in the Battle of Cowshed how he had rallied and encouraged them at every turn, and how he had not paused for an instant even when the pellets of Jones's gun had wounded his back. At first it was a little difficult to see how this fitted in with his being on Jones's side. Even Boxer, who seldom asked questions, was puzzled. He lay down, tucked his forehoofs beneath him, shut his eyes, and with a hard effort managed to formulate his thoughts. I do not believe that, he said. Snowball fought bravely at the Battle of Cowshed. I saw him myself. Did he not give him animal hero didn't did we not give him animal hero first class immediately afterwards? That was a mistake, comrade, for we know now it was all written down in the secret documents that we have found, that in reality he was trying to lure us to our doom. But he was wounded, said Boxer. We all saw him running with blood. 
That was part of the arrangement, cried Squealer. Jones's shot only grazed him. I could show you this in his own writing if you were able to read it. The plot was for Snowball, at the critical moment, to give a signal for flight and leave the field to the enemy. And he was very, and he very nearly succeeded. I will even say, comrades, he would have succeeded if it was not if it had not been for the heroic leader, Comrade Napoleon. Do you not remember how, just at the moment when Jones and his men had got out inside the yard, Snowball immediately turned and fled, and many animals followed him? And do you not remember, too, that it was just at the moment when panic was spreading and all steam lost, that Comrade Napoleon sprang forward to cry, Death to humanity, and sank his teeth into Jones's leg? None of that shit happened. Surely you remember that, comrades, exclaimed Squealer, frisking from side to side. This is the changing of history, and this is why the changing of history is so dangerous. The left does that today. History needs to go away. The United States wasn't discovered in 1776 it was discovered in 1619 that's that stupid 1619 project that the freaking new york times released this is exactly what's happening when you tear down statues we eliminate columbus day because columbus day columbus was not no angel i'm not going to say he was the english were not angels there was slavery there were bad things that happened in the united states but the United States history, for the most part, is actually a good history. We've tried. We have a Declaration of Independence and a Constitution that try to make it so that we're all equal, we're all free. But when you change that history and you make that history evil, this is one thing I'm always going to fight about. I'm always going to fight about this. I'm always going to say, no, you're just dead wrong here. This is dead wrong. And Boxer, unfortunately, the biggest animal on the farm, the strongest animal on the farm, probably stronger now that he's been exercising so much, has just put himself in danger. Because now he's beginning to question things and he's never questioned things before. And later in this chapter, we're going to get confirmation of that. Now, when Squealer described the scene so graphically, it seemed to the animals that they did not they did remember it. At any rate, they remembered that at a critical moment of the battle, Snowball had turned to flee, but Boxer was still a little uneasy. I do not believe that Snowball was a traitor at the beginning, he said finally. What he had done since is different, but I believe that the Battle of Cowshed he was a good comrade. Our leader, Comrade Napoleon, announced Squealer, speaking very slowly and firmly, has stated categorically, categorically, comrade, that Snowball was Jones's agent from the very beginning. Yes, and from long before the rebellion was ever thought of. Ah, that is different, said Boxer. If Comrade Napoleon says it, it must be right. It's too late. Boxer's in trouble. This is the true spirit, comrade, cried Squealer, but it was noticed he cast a very ugly look at Boxer, with a little twinkle in his eyes. He turned to go, then paused and added impressively, 
I warned every animal on this farm to keep his eyes very wide open, for we have reason to think that some of Snowball's agents are lurking among us at the moment. Four days later, in the late afternoon, Napoleon ordered all animals to assemble in the yard. When they were gathered together, Napoleon emerged from the farmhouse, wearing both his medals, for he had recently awarded himself Animal Hero First Class and Animal Hero Second Class, as a dictator typically does. With his, with his nine huge dogs frisking about him and uttering growls that sent shivers down all the animals' spines, they all cowered silently in their places, seeming to know in advance that some terrible thing was going to happen. Napoleon stood sternly surveying his audience. Then he uttered a high-pitched whimper. Immediately the dogs bounded forward, seized four of the pigs by the ears, and dragged them, squealing with pain and terror, to Napoleon's feet. The pigs' ears were bleeding, the dogs had tasted blood, and for a few moments they appeared to go quite mad. To the amazement of everyone, three of them flung themselves upon Bos Boxer, so now the dogs are attacking Boxer. I told you, it's going to be bad. But here's the problem. Boxer's big. He's a horse. He's strong. Boxer saw them coming and put out his great hoof, caught a dog in midair, and pinned him to the ground. The dog shrieked for mercy, and the other two fled with the tails between their legs. Boxer looked at Napoleon to know whether he should crush the dog to death or let it go. Napoleon appeared to change continents and sharply ordered Boxer to let the dog go, whereat Boxer lifted his hoof, and the dog slunk away, bruised and howling. Now, that might not sound... That might sound like, okay, he, he's following orders of um, Napoleon. He's not. It doesn't matter. Remember this, and I told you I was going to talk a little bit more about the left today. Remember this. You're never forgiven. You're never forgiven. You can apologize. You can agree. But you are never forgiven. And Boxer is not forgiven. He's just too strong to take over. So just remember this. It's coming. Cancel culture. That's one of the problems with cancel culture. Drives me absolutely crazy. Uh, Kevin Hart sits back, posts, a, posts something in 2009, for Christ's sake, about his son being gay. And... He loses jobs. He apologizes. It doesn't matter. These people are looking for something to hate you for. Presently, the tumult died down. The four pigs waited, trembling, with guilt written on every line of their countenances. Napoleon now called upon them to confess their crimes. They were the same four pigs as had protested when Napoleon abolished the Sunday meetings. Without any further prompting, they confessed that they had been secretly in touch with Snowball ever since their expulsion that had been collaborated with him destroying the windmill, and that they had entered into agreement with him to hand over the animal farm to Mr. Frederick. They added that Snowball had privately admitted them that he had been Jones's secret agent for the years past. When they had finished their confession, the dogs promptly tore their throats out, and in a terrible voice, Napoleon demanded whether any other animals had anything to confess. I, I don't like the way that Orwell did this. Um, I know what he was trying to do. 
but I don't like it. I because it made it seem like you still don't know whether anybody had actually done anything. It made it sound like they actually did. Um, so I'm not thrilled with this. Whereas with Stalin, he would accuse you of a crime and it make you confess. And usually it was through torture. Now, one could read this and say that the torture was the dogs ripping them apart and they were ripping, grabbing by the ears, making them bleed and things like that. But you can't really tell. So let's move on. The three hens who had been ringleaders in the attempted rebellion over the eggs now came forward and stated that Snowball had appeared to them in a dream and incited them to disobey Napoleon's orders. They too were slaughtered. Then a goose came forward and confessed to having secreted six ears of corn during the last year's harvest and eaten them in the night. Then the sheep confessed to having urinated on the drinking pool. Urged to do this, so she said. By Snowball. Now, mind you, so she said. So, again, you don't know if these this actually happened. And two other sheep confessed to having murdered an old ram, an especially devoted follower of Napoleon, by chasing him around and around the bonfire when he was suffering from a cough. They were all slain on the spot. And so the tale of confessions and executions went on until there was a pile of corpses lying before Napoleon's feet, and the air was heavy with the smell of blood, which had been known there since the expulsion of Jones. This is the, um, this is the purge. This always happens in author authoritarian, yeah, I'm changing my page, show notes. This always happens in authoritarian governments. Um, they all do this, and they do this because they need to maintain order. Authoritarian governments typically have one person or a couple of people that actually run them. And this, this has happened throughout history. Um, Hitler killed 12 million people. I, he, by the way, he wasn't a communist. This is where I, I use the authoritarian and don't use uh, communists, because it wasn't just the communists that did it. Um Millions were killed under Castro and Che Guevara. You know, that idiot that people wear their T-shirts of? Che Guevara was a complete coward. He was a lousy military leader, and he killed millions. We don't even know how many he killed. Um, Stalin killed 30 to 50 million. Um, Mao killed 70 to 100 million. Again, we don't even know if these are all correct. And if you look at the Kim family that had taken over, I think it was in the 50s or 60s. No. Uh, Kim had, it was the 50s. He probably killed, that family probably killed 100 to 200 million. And that still goes on today. No one says anything. No one, it's just, that's what it is. That's what authoritarian governments do. And the one reason I don't like the talk of communism, because all of these were dictatorships. All of them. Mao, Stalin, Castro, Kim, Hitler. They were dictatorships. They weren't truly communist socialist governments. They were pure 100% dictatorships that worked under a socialist economy. We're going along, but there are only two pages left. When it was all over, the remaining animals, except for the pigs and the dogs, crept away in a body. They were shaken and miser miserable. 
They did not know which was more shocking, the treachery of the animals who had leagued themselves with Snowball or the cruel retribution they had just witnessed. In the old days, there were often scenes of bloodshed, equally terrible, but it seemed to all of them that it was far worse now that it was happening among themselves. Since Jones had left the farm, until today no animal had been killed by another animal. Not even a rat had been killed. They had made their way on to the little knoll where the half-finished windmill stood, and with one accord they all lay down as though huddling together for warmth. Clover, Muriel, Benjamin, the cows, the sheep, and a whole flock of geese and hens, everyone, indeed, except the cat who had suddenly disappeared just before Napoleon ordered the animals to assemble. For some time nobody spoke. Only Boxer remained on his feet. He fidgeted to and fro, swishing his tail long, is a long black tail against his sides and occasionally uttering a little whinny of surprise. Finally, he said, I do not understand it. I would not have believed that such things could happen on our farm. It must be due to the fault of in ourselves. The solution, as I see it, is to work harder. From now onwards, I shall get up a full hour earlier in the mornings. And he moved off his lumbering trot and made for the quarry. Having got there, he collected two successive loads of stones and dragged them down to the windmill before retiring for the night. The animals huddled. You know, before I get into this, um, great comment from Alexander Solzhitskin in the Gulag Archipelago. The Tsar of Russia, before the Bolshevik Revolution, the Tsar of Russia was not a good guy. He was particularly cruel. He gave the people the minimum. He was a dictator. He was a king. Basically a dictator. But he was... Sholzitskin did not like the Tsar. There was no question. He was a, a he understood history, but he said he noticed that you know people were arrested and they were thrown in prison for kind of light things, but it was nothing like what the Bolsheviks did when they took over when they killed the Tsar, and they took over. It wasn't the same thing. And that's one of the things Boxer is beginning to realize. It's, um, things are bad, right? Uh, things were bad under Jones. But he doesn't remember it being this bad. And now the animals are killing each other. So this is something to think about. Okay, so let's continue. The animals huddled about Clover, not speaking. The knoll where they were lying gave a wide prospect across the countryside. Most animal farms, uh, most of animal farm was within view. The long pasture stretching down to the main road, the hay field, the spiny, the drinking pool, the plow field where the young wheat was thick and green, and the red hooves of the farm buildings with smoke curling from the chimneys. It was a clear spring evening. The grass had been burst, uh, grass and bursting hedges were gilded by the level rays of sun. Never had the farm, and with a kind of surprise, they remembered that it was their own farm. Every inch of it 
uh, their own property appear to the animals so desirable a place. So the animals are going to realize it's not their country. It's not their farm. As Clover looked down the hillside, her eyes filled with tears. If she could have spoken her thoughts, it would have been to say that this was not what they had aimed at when they had set themselves years ago to work for an overthrow of the human race. These signs of terror and slaughter were not what they had looked forward to on the night when Old Major had first stirred them into rebellion. If she herself had had any picture of the future, it had been a society of animals set free from hunger and the whip, all equal, each working according to his capacity, the strong protecting the weak, and she had protected the lost brood of ducklings with her foreleg on the night of major speech. Instead, she did not know why, they had come to a time when no one dared to speak his mind, when fierce, growling dogs roamed everywhere, and when you had to watch your comrades torn to pieces after confessing to shocking crimes. There was no thought of rebellion or disobedience in the mind. She, in her mind, she knew that, even as things were, they were far better off than they had been the days of Jones, and that before all else it was needful to prevent it was needful to prevent the return of the human beings. Whatever happened she would remain faithful, work hard, carry out the orders that were given to her, and accept the leadership of Napoleon. But still it was not for this that she had she and all the other animals had hoped and toiled. It was not for this that they had built the windmill and faced the bullets of Jones's gun. Such were her thoughts, though she lacked the words to express them. At last, feeling this to be in some way a substitute for the words she was unable to find, she began to sing the Beast of England. The other animals sitting around her took it up, and they sang it three times, Tr very tunefully, but slowly and mournfully, in the way they had never sung it before. They, were, they had just finished singing it for the third time when Squealer, attended by two dogs, approached them with air of having something important to say. He announced that, by a special decree of Comrade Napoleon, the Beast of England had been abolished. From now onwards, it was forbidden to sing it. The animals were taken aback. Why? cried Muriel. It's no longer needed, comrade, said Squealer stiffly. Beast of England was the song of rebellion, but rebellion is now completed. The execution of the traitors this afternoon was the final act. The enemy, both external and internal, was has been defeated. In Beast of England, we express our longing for a better society in the days to come. But the society has now been established. Clearly, this song is no longer the purpose. So what happened there? Utopia. Utopia has been created according to comrade leader Napoleon. Frightened, though they were, some of the animals might possibly have protested, but at this moment the sheep set up their usual bleeding of four legs good, 
two legs bad, which went on for several minutes and put an end to the discussion. So when you hear a leftist scream, no justice, no peace, remember this, because that's what that is, is just to shut you up, shut us up. That's all it's about. So the beasts of England was heard no more. In its place, Minimus, the poet, a pig, of course, had composed another song which began, Animal Farm, Animal Farm, Never through me shalt thou come to harm. And this was sung every Sunday morning after the hoisting of the flag. But somehow neither the words nor the tune ever seemed to the animals to come up to the beasts of England. Folks, this is utopia. This is the utopia that communism promises. Does this sound like utopia? Is this the utopia you would like to see or live in? This is the top utopia that people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are constantly promising. It's bullshit. This is not utopia. This is utopia for the people on top. And this is an important thing. This is an important thing. Why is it corporations? And I find it ironic that you got people like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez always condemning corporations, but the corporations are leftists. NBC is leftist. CBS, ABC, Twitter, Facebook, they lean left. Facebook's more libertarian, but Twitter is a leftist organization. CNN is a leftist organization. The Washington Post, the New York Times, these are leftist. Why are they leftist organizations? You know why? They're already established in the system. And they know the leftists, if they ever take over, and they pray they do, if they ever take over, they will be in control of their specific little areas. That's what's really scary about this whole thing. And this was one of the more terrifying chapters in this book. There's going to be one more chapter that's... Uh, there can be two more chapters that are just like, oh my God. But this is a terrifying chapter. Okay, so you can follow me on Twitter at RunninFool, R-U-N-N-I-N-F-E-W-L. You can download or listen to this podcast on Pod on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, and YouTube. You can visit my website at www.dumbassestalkingpolitics.com. Though I did not do a podcast this week, I did do a blog post article. It'll be there. This is Gene, and you've listened to Dumbasses Talking Politics. <laughs>